Let me invite you to turn to your, into your Bibles to Psalm 36, and that'll be the primary text that we consider, and we'll look at a few, a few others briefly. But let me say I am uh, excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this once uh, I, I knew that uh, I would be coming and... Um, my ministry together for adoption, uh, what we seek to do is to help, well, my, my book is called Reclaiming Adoption, and uh, uh, what that means is that in our day, the word adoption is pretty much, the meaning of the word is pretty much determined by how it's used in, in uh, secular culture. So when we talk about adoption, we're talk, we, we, we first think of children, of families adopting children into their families. And so when I say together for adoption and reclaiming it, what I'm trying to do and what our ministry is trying to do in all our conferences and resources that we produce is to look at it from the way that Paul presented it. Because when Paul in the New Testament uses the word adoption five times, He's doing it in a world that, very much like ours, thinks primarily in terms of families adopting children. And But what he is doing is taking that word and essentially hijacking it and then filling it with Old Testament history, Old Testament meaning, the, the dealing of God with man in the Old Testament to bring about redemption. And so that's what Paul is doing so he's trying, to, he's trying to get people to think differently, to think biblically about the word adopt, adoption and not have it controlled by how the society thinks about it. So that's always my mission, both broadly with the organization and when I, when I preach and, and teach. And so that's uh, one of the main things I'm seeking to do today, and hopefully you'll be encouraged by by what scripture reveals about adoption. I'm going to do it a little different way than I normally do. And let me begin by, I have uh, my wife, uh, Melissa, is not able to be here on Mother's Day, so um, I'm being especially nice uh, prior to my trip here and after my trip here. So, um, And she's good with that. She, uh, she d- d- does not hold grudges, so I'm very grateful. And... Uh, um, but, uh, so I, my wife, we've married 23 years, and then we have a biological child who has uh, just finished her freshman year of college, and then uh, we adopted two children. Isaiah uh, is black and uh, is now 13 year, years old. We adopted him at eight days old, and then uh, Noah is now 11, and we adopted him at two days old. And we didn't know that we were adopting him until the day he was born. And so I asked, what's the time frame of picking him up? And, he, and uh, our lawyer said, tomorrow. So that was the quickest, quickest pregnancy we have ever had. And I was up in the attic. I was on my way to bed when I got the phone call. I had my pajamas on, and I was on my way to bed. Phone call happened, and for the rest of the next several hours, I was up in the attic bringing uh, baby furniture down. So... That was, a, that was an exciting, exciting time. But with my youngest, uh, he, he, is, he is a very deep thinker. He's already asking questions that uh, my 13-year-old hasn't even uh, considered. 
And my 13-year-old is quite content not to think about um, his birth parents and what transpired to get him from where he was then to where he is now. But my youngest is always, is always thinking and uh, goes to a public school. So he's 11 now, but back when he was 8 years old. My wife uh, volunteers every Tuesday. Um, she's been doing that since they've been in school. So every Tuesday, she's there all day. She works with their teachers. And she happened to be in the classroom this day. It was after Black History Month. And, um, and so she, she's in the classroom, and she happens to walk by Noah's desk. And he has a classmate who's also black. And this girl hears Noah refer to this, his mother as mommy. And she's white. Noah's black. And so this little girl says, uh, Noah, why is your mommy white? Okay, there's lots, lots of ways he could answer that question, right? Uh, the easy way would have been to say, well, I was adopted, and leave it at that. Okay, yeah, I get that. I get that. Uh, you were adopted. Um, you're black. She's white. She adopted you. That's how you have a white mommy. It's not what he does. And I didn't coach him on this. So when he got home and I asked him, you know, how he came up with this, you know, I was trying to learn uh, because he was a teacher and I was a student at the time. And so here's what he says, all right? So, and, and his teacher was uh, standing right behind um, his, his desk and my wife had already made it to the other side of the classroom. And he, he says to this little girl, this is, so this is after Black History Month, and he says... He looks at her, and very matter-of-fact, he says, well, um, this is not a question that Martin Luther King Jr. would ask. <laughs> He's eight! He's eight! So, and then he goes on, you know, it's, 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 it's not the color of your skin, it's the content of your character, and... Um, you know, the little girl sitting there. <laughs> no response, no response. Okay, very good answer. And the teacher's hearing that, and so as soon as Noah finishes, you know, giving his answer, she runs over to Melissa and says, you won't believe what he said, and blah, 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 here's what he said. And then, um, you know, I work from home, and so when they get home, Melissa says, Noah, you got you, you to tell Daddy the story. And so he told me the story, and I said, how did you... How did you come up with that answer? He goes, well, you know, last, his, last month was uh, Black History Month, and we were talking about Martin Luther King and his um, I Have a Dream speech. And uh, it occurred to me, <laughs> my son uses words like this. He, he has rather large vocabulary. Um, he, he says, it occurred to me that his message and his life applies directly to my family's life, whether I'm at school or home. And I said, that's true. I'm learning here. Well, here's the interesting thing about that. Noah was doing what, you know, I, I would think very few children his age uh, tend to do, and that is to look at their life, okay, so they have a school day, 8 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon, 
They have a school day, but he's looking at that portion of the school day, and then he's looking at it when he gets home, and he's relating to his family. He's looking at each day and his living in each day as part of a larger narrative. A powerful narrative that informs the way he views the world, informs the way he thinks about the world, and he processes his experiences and his discussions with classmates as an eight-year-old. And so here is a guy, an eight-year-old, who is learning to live his day-to-day mundane life in light of a larger narrative. See, that's really what the Christian does. When, when we fail, when we, get, when we get lost in the mundane, when we get lost in the day-to-day, in the stresses of the day-to-day, in the family problems, and the, and the conflict that we face at work, and the conflict that we face when we're driving, and there's road rage issues taking place, um, those are all symptomatic of the fact that we are, we are living in the moment, and we're not living in light of a larger story. A larger story that in the end, the biblical story, all things are made right and we are caught up into that because of our union with Jesus. And so this is something that we as Christians desperately need to learn and to practice. How does this relate to adoption? Well, in Scripture, adoption is the story in which we live. So I don't want you to think of adoption. This is true of adoption. But I don't want you to think of adoption as the act of God by which he legally places us in his family. That's true. Westminster Confession uh, states it that way. So that is absolutely true. Adoption is the act by God whereby he graciously places us within his family. But I don't want you to limit it to that. It's much bigger than that. It's fuller than that. It's more robust than that. In Scripture, adoption is the story in which we live. It's the story that, both, that shapes both the way we see life and the way we live life. Shapes both the way we see life and we live life. Now, there's this guy named Robert McKee, and he's actually a screenwriting guru. He's actually called the, the story doctor. And so what he does is he holds these seminars, full-day seminars, where you'll have Julia Roberts and all these uh, A-list actors and producers and writers come in, and he's teaching them the structure of story and how to actually write a story, how to understand how story works so that they can become better at their craft. And so he's actually produced, people who have attended his, his seminars have actually won, I don't know how many Emmys, Academy Awards, Golden Globes. Um, everybody who is somebody who, who has participated in his, in his seminars. And in his go-to book, here's what he writes about the importance of story. The world, know, the world now consumes films, novels, theater, and television in such quantities and such ravenous hunger that the story arts have become humanity's prime source of inspiration as it seeks to order chaos and gain insight into life. So a world filled with chaos, they go to 
movies to try to find order to that chaos and insight into not just life in general, but their own lives. And he says, our appetite for story is a reflection of the profound need to grasp patterns of living. Story isn't a flight from reality. It's not a flight from reality, but a vehicle that carries us on our search for reality, our best effort to make sense out of the anarchy of our existence. So that's in his book, Story, Style, Structure, Substance, and the Principles of Screenwriting. Now, did, did, you, catch, did you catch the last sentence of Robert's quotation? Here's what he says. Story isn't a flight from reality, but a vehicle that carries us on our search for reality. Our best effort to make sense out of the anarchy of existence. And here's what I say. And the story of adoption provides infinitely more than our best effort. Doesn't need our best effort. Doesn't need our effort. Needs nothing from us. It, it, it's, it, it's the story that actually ushers us into the reality that stands the test of time. Eternity past, eternity future. And, and whether we realize it or not, adoption provides the end of our search to make sense out of the anarchy of existence, the fallenness, the brokenness of this world. And as it relates to what we're focusing on this morning, it's, it's the story that makes sense out of the anarchy of the global orphan crisis. Maybe not in the way that we think it may. Now, our primary text uh, to look at, to consider this morning, is Psalm 36, 5 to 9. Now, let me just give you some context here before we actually read verses 5 to 9. So Psalm 36, 5 to 9. Now, in, uh, in verses 1 to 4, David is describing the anarchy he sees as he looks at the wicked. All right, so there he is. He's looking at the wicked. He's looking at those who prosper as the wicked. And he's describing the anarchy that he sees. And, and then the second half of verse 1 sums up the first four verses. All right, so he starts out by saying, here's the summary of what I see. And then he goes on to, to give particular examples of it. But the summary of what he sees, the second half of verse 1 is, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the anarchy. The God who created them, the God who created man in his image, that gives man a responsibility to worship God, to obey God, to submit to God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They are not going to obey. They are not going to submit. They are rebellious. They are going to do their own thing. And so that's the anarchy that David is seeing in the world. And we'll see in a little bit that David does not just have in mind the wicked in his day. So he looks around Israel. He's, he doesn't just have in mind the wicked in his day that he can see and interact with. He also has the fallenness 
of man from the Garden of Eden onward in mind. So up until his point, he, he sees the whole scope of human history through this particular lens. And so when we get to verses 5 to 9, what David begins to do is to rehearse the story in which all things are made right. So all that anarchy is made right. God begins to bring order and renewal and restoration and redemption into that, and he makes all things right, and that's what verses 5 to 9 are about. So it's kind of this, man, here's how bleak life is, the anarchy of existence, the anarchy of the global orphan crisis in the world, and then suddenly he jumps immediately into this God who's, who is described in terms that we can't even begin to comprehend because it is this God who makes all things right in a spectacular way, in a way in which we receive immense enjoyment and satisfaction and renewal and restoration ourselves. So, let's read Psalm 36, verses 5 to 9. David writes, Your steadfast love, O Lord. Now notice his, he's using descriptions. He's helping us understand the steadfast love of the Lord by, by likening it to the physical creation. To give us a size of the magnitude of the steadfast love of the Lord. He says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. And then he jumps back up to sea level. Man and beast you save. O Lord. Verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind, they take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Verse 8, they Feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. This is what God does for those who take refuge under the shadow of his ring, uh, his wings. He gives them the feast on the abundance of his house. We'll come back to that. And he gives them drink from the river of delights. The, the Hebrew that's being used there in that second part is that he actually causes them to drink. It's not that he holds out a little can filled with water and offers it. Here, let me give this to you to drink. No, he actually causes us to drink. And however that happens, I don't know if there's this desire he implants within us. Where we're looking at this water that he's handing us and we're like, I've got to drink that. I've got to drink that. My mouth is just watering. I've got to... I've got to ingest that water and feel its refreshment. So I don't know how it happens, but what God does for those who take refuge in Him is He causes them to drink. It's an internal thing that God does in us so that we find ourselves craving and thirsting for the water that He alone can provide that quenches thirst. Now, one of the most important observations we can make about Psalm 36 is that it has the entire, now listen to this, right? and this is often not recognized just because of the English translation. 
One of the most important observations we can make about Psalm 36 is that it has the entire story of redemption contained within it. Not happenstance, not by accident, not, oh, wow, I didn't mean to do that, but this will work. No, that's not what happened here. And I'm going to show you this in a minute. So it, it, it was the Holy Spirit's intention for that to happen when David penned it. And then the, the second observation, so that's the first. The second observation to note here is that Psalm 36 is very closely re- related to Scripture's story of adoption. Don't see it on the surface, but you'll see it here in just a minute. So let, let, me, let me show you. So back to, uh, let's look at verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 36. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They, they feast, so here's the activity. Those who take refuge, they feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. All right, you see that word delights? It's in the ESV. You know what the Hebrew word for the word delights is? All right, I'm going to give you the Hebrew word, and you'll know exactly to what that word refers. Okay, here it is. Delights, right? That's, that's, that's our translation. Here's the Hebrew word. The river of Edens. Edens. That's the plural. What's the singular? Eden. So what psalmist is doing here is that God gives those who take refuge in him, he gives them to drink from the river of his, not just Eden, singular, but Edens, plural. Now we're going to come back to what that entails, but that's beautiful. So you know what he's doing there? He's already taken this verse and that single word, and you know what he's done? He's just, he's, 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 he's just taken all of redemptive history up to that point, and he's, he's boiled it down into a single wor- word. Th- there are certain words that when we hear them, uh, memories flood our minds. All right, l- let me give you a couple. So I say this word, and then you'll have memories that will flood your minds. Um, 9-11. So yeah, do you have images that are coming into your mind right now about the you know the the towers and the devastation, the death? So just saying, nine eleven images come, stories come into our mind, and the longer we dwell on it, the more stories we have, and the more it fills in our understanding. So you just can't say nine eleven and expect people to think, oh, those are numbers. It doesn't work that way because those. Those, those, those numbers actually tap into a story, a significant story in American history. What about Mount St. Helens? Those of us who are older, what stories, what memories does that bring back to you? I can still remember seeing the footage of Mount St. Helens blowing its top and the ash and soot that it just shot everywhere and the trees that it just leveled for how far? 
so it, it brings back all kinds of, of stories. And, and the longer I think about it, I, I can remember news reports and this or that and this, this uh, human interest story that came as a result. Uh, Katrina does the same thing. Uh, what about the DC sniper? Remember that? DC sniper? My parents uh, lived 15 minutes from one uh, of the places where that sniper killed uh, a woman at a gas station. And uh, so uh, I was visiting my parents just a week after um, that woman was killed at that gas station. And I look and my, my, uh, my gas is on empty. I'm like, okay, I've got to find a gas station quick because it's, you know, Mountain Baltimore area. And I, you know, I don't, I don't want to lose run out of gas here, so I look, oh, there's a gas station, and I pull in, and as I pull in, I realize this is that gas station. So I get out, and I start putting gas into my car, and there's a bridge up on the other side where the shooter shot down from, and I remember looking up there, and I'm telling you, everything in my body, as I was putting the gas in, it, one of those where, it, it, you know, they remove the little clip that allows you to put it in and then, you know, get in your car and duck for cover. So you just have to hold it. So I'm holding it here and everything in my body wanted to start doing this. I just wanted to make myself, you know, a hard target. Everything in my body wanted to do that. So I just stood there and I was like, I will not let fear control me. You know, and the fact that I'm like, Fear was controlling me. I was just dictating in which way it would control me. And I remember thinking, you know, what if I go like this? People are going to think, you know, the guy needs to go to the restroom. All kinds of things are going through your head. But there are words that unleash for us all kinds of memories. And depending upon the word, that can be very painful memories, very hard memories, or very good memories. Well, Eden, for the Jewish people, was one of those words. So when they read what David wrote here, that those who take refuge under the shadow of God's wings, God gives them to drink of the river of his Edens, all of their past history comes flooding in upon them. And so they begin to think, especially after David has talked about the wicked and the way they live in this world, and the anarchy of their existence. One of the things that would have occurred to the, the Hebrew at this point was, weren't Adam and Eve exiled from the Garden of Eden? How is it possible then that God would give them to drink of the river of his delights, which is in Eden. So there's a tension there. How is that even possible? See, Eden is one of those words that call out to us. That it, it creates longing within us. A longing for something that once was ours, but we lost it. J.R.R. Tolkien really hits on this in a letter that he wrote to his son when his son was 21 years old, and I think he was serving in the military at that point. 
And here's what Tolkien writes in this letter. He says to his son Christopher, certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it. And we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. And that's what David was counting on in these verses in Psalm 36. He wanted verse 8 to serve as a portal or as a wormhole into the entire story of redemption. So he wants to take us to the time when everything was went wrong, to the time when sin entered the world. And he does this with the word house as well, as you see that in the first half of verse 8. They feast on the abundance of your house. And what is house here? To what does house refer? House refers to Israel's tabernacle temple. And and you know it was woven into the fabric that separates the holy of holies from everything else in the tabernacle temple. You know it was so woven into it? Cherubim. And what do we know about Adam and Eve's exile from the Garden of Eden? At the east end, what was placed? Cherubim with a flaming sword. There's no way back in. To come back in, you lose your head. Judgment. So there's a tension here that that David's words are playing upon. Now what exactly was the river of God's Eden? Here's what I want to suggest. The river of God's Edens, God's delights, was the eternal love between the Father and the Son. The love that the Father shared with the Son, the Son received from the Father, the Son shared with the Father in the bond, the communion of the Holy Spirit for all of eternity past. The Father poured out His love upon the Son, and the Son perfectly received that love joyfully, and and the Son joyfully returned that love to the Father. So forever and ever you had the communion of love, which is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was their delights for all of eternity past. And so when God creates Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and this river of delights to give them to drink of that meant that God's intention was that they participate in the love of the Father and the Son. Not as observers, not as people in the stands who observe the great love between the Father and the Son, but this eternal love story that existed before anything was created now enters into time and space and man is given the opportunity to participate in the eternal love between the Father and the Son. That was what man was given But what we know of Eden and the fall of man, man was exiled from that. But somehow David says that those who take refuge under the shadow of his wings, God will give them, not 
reluctantly, God will give them the drink of the river of his Edens. In other words, to participate, to be an active participant in the love of the Father for the Son. I said that adoption is related very closely to what's happening in Psalm 36. Now listen to this. This is the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3. And notice what Luke does here. So I'll, I'll read it, and I'll, I'll read the first few verses and skip ahead to, towards the end. But here's what he says, Luke 3, 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of old, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph. And then you skip to verse 37. So, so far we have the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. Verse 37, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalia. Uh, Boy, I knew I was going to have problems with that one. Uh, the son with Mr. M, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So to maybe our surprise, Adam is referred to as the son of God. Of course, what? Little s, not big s. Only one big s, eternal son. Only begotten of the father. No beginning, no end. Sinclair Ferguson in his book, Children of the Living God, he talks about the importance of sonship in biblical teaching. And here's what he says. We can express its centrality abruptly, but, but truly by saying our sonship so this is Sinclair Ferguson. Our sonship to God is the apex of the goal of creation. God's first man was created as his image in order to be his son. Listen to that. God's first man was created in God's image in order to be his son. Luke suggests that Adam was the son of God in his genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Sinclair continues to be a son in the language of Genesis, was to be made in the likeness, in the image and likeness of one's father. So when Seth was born to Adam and Eve, the event is recorded in these terms. When Adam had turned 30, 130 years, he has a son in his own likeness, in his own image. So to be a son is to be created in the image and likeness of your father. And then he says, exactly the same phrase is used about God's relationship between, uh, the relationship between God and Adam. God made man in his image and likeness to be a son and to be the image and likeness of your father are synonymous ideas. To put it another way, if we wish to understand what man was intended to be, we need to think of him as a son of God. In other words, the creature man was created to participate in the love between the eternal father and the eternal son. How does this connect with adoption? In Scripture, 
Adoption is the redemptive activity of God to redeem and restore man to sonship. The, act, the redemptive activity of God to redeem and restore man to some sonship. Now, I give you a handout here that kind of lays out the timeline of what I like to call uh, redemption as adoptive history. And I'm not, not going to go through all of these verses. I'm just going to highlight um, several of them and only the ones that actually have the word adoption in it. So in, if you look at the far left in Ephesians 1, 3 to 5, that's our first that's our first reference of Paul to adoption where he says that we were predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And when did that happen? That happened before the creation of the world, before the first molecules began to form, before God spoke anything into existence. God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So this is before the created order is in existence. And then God creates, and what does he do? He creates Adam and Eve in his image. And as we've just seen, Adam and Eve were created to be sons of God. In other words, to be a son is to participate in the love between the father and the son. So both men and women have the exact privilege of enjoying the love between the eternal Father, and the eternal Son. And then we have the fall. So as God begins to continue to work his plan of adoptive history, you have Romans 9-4, which is God raises up Israel through Abraham, and God gives Abraham promises that there will be this son, and there will be this nation, and they will be in Egyptian bondage for 400 years. We see that in, in Genesis 15. And so God's working this plan, and it seems like it's taking forever. And then you get the Romans 9-4, where Paul is outlining the privileges that Israel enjoyed. And the first privilege he, he references is that Israel received the adoption. And when did they receive the adoption? When they were given the law after they were delivered out of Egyptian bondage. So they were legally declared to be God's son, Israel, corporate Israel, legally declared to be God's son. And then the question is, will God's son be faithful as they live according to the law that God has given them? And then we know the story that they are unfaithful. And then we get to our next adoption text, Galatians 4, 4 to 6. And I have a triangle at the top to represent the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because the Father sends the Son into the world that he might to become a, a man born of a woman born under the law, that he might redeem us who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he sends the Son into the world that the Son may achieve sonship, adoption for us. The Son is successful in his mission. He dies, he's raised. He ascends, and when he ascends, Paul says in Galatians 4 that, and because you are sons, the Father sent the spirit of that son who who became incarnate, lived, died, rose, ascended, sent the spirit of that son into our hearts, and what does that spirit cry? He cries, Abba, Father. And then our experience from that point onward 
is found in Romans 8, 14, and 15, where Paul says, you're no longer given the spirit of fear unto bondage, which takes you back to the, the Exodus scenario. You're no longer given the spirit of fear, but you're given the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So the Spirit's work in us is to remind us, to refresh us that the Father is indeed our Father. And so when we find ourselves crying, Abba, Father, when we find ourselves crying, Father, that is the work of God to restore us to sonship with God, that we may participate fully, eternally in the love of the Father and the Son. And then you have the final text, Romans 8, 23, which is Paul saying, we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. We, we, we eagerly await our adoption. And then he tells us what he means there, the redemption of our bodies or the glorification of our bodies. And at that point, all of creation itself is set free from its bondage to decay. No more sin, no more tears, no more disease. We now live fully, eternally as those who are children of the Father. And we enjoy not just our love with the Father, but we are caught up into the love of the Father. As the Father loves the Son, that love is our love. We are delighted in as much as the Father delights in His Son, and that never changes. It can never increase, never can decrease, because the Father's love for His eternal Son never increases or decreases. It is always there. And when we've been united to that Son, that is our destiny. So even as Jesus came up out of the baptismal waters and the Father, a dove descends and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I well please. Well, in the baptismal waters in Jordan, Jesus was identifying himself with sinners. He was identifying himself with us, taking upon himself the baptism of repentance. And though he himself had no sin, he was repenting and confessing our sins in our place. Not his sins, he had none. So that when the Father spoke over him, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, the same words are, are declared over us. And the challenge of the Christian life is to wake up each day hearing and believing that those words are being spoken over us. Now, touch briefly on the sharp edge of the anarchy of our fallen world with the global orphan crisis. I'm going to throw some statistics at you. Um, I, I covered this in, I think, a little more helpful way in the Sunday school class, and I, I think they uh, videotaped it, so uh, a video recorded it, so uh, you, you, if you can, you may wish to watch that. I think it might be helpful. But uh, UNICEF uh, says there are approximately 153 million children worldwide classified as orphans. 153 million. Okay, that's a number that makes no sense to us. We have no way to get a handle on that. And when it says uh, 153 million orphans, it means orphans that have lost one or both parents. So not just orphans that have lost both parents, no, one or both parents. So the question is how many of those children, 153 million, have actually lost both parents, and, and that is approximately 7.8 million have lost both parents. 
Imagine taking the entire population of New York City. Been in New York City many times, walked the streets. I actually walked from Staten Island all the way up to Central Park, five some miles, and then walked all the way back on my aching feet. And that's a big city, lots of people. Imagine all those people being replaced with orphans. You know what would happen? We would double the population of New York City. That still doesn't even give us a sense of the magnitude of the problem. And those are just those who have lost both parents. And this isn't even accounting for those who live in orphanages. This is only those who are in homes and foster care scenarios. And this does not account for those who live on the streets. This does not account for those who have been swept up into sex trafficking. This does not account for many, many, many children. So we should be adding millions to this number of kids that are in a desperate situation of the anarchy of our existence and we don't even know who they are, where they are, or how to reach them or how to help them. About these uh, global statistics, the Christian Alliance for Orphans white paper states this, one of the greatest weaknesses in the global orphan estimates is that they only include orphans that are currently living in homes. They do not count the, the estimated two to eight-plus million children living in institutions, nor do current estimates include the vast number of children who are living on the streets, exploited for labor, victims of trafficking, or participating in armed groups. Thus, global orphan statistics significantly underestimate the number of orphans worldwide and fail to account for many children that are among the most vulnerable and most in need of a family. Okay, so that leads me to ask this question. Why is fatherlessness such a tragedy? Ever stop to think about that? Well, God created the family, and the family, you know, is meant to be intact, and that's how faith education is passed down from generation to generation. Yeah, but, you know, that, that's important. But why is fatherless, fatherlessness such a tragedy? Have you ever thought about the fact that the primary reason fatherlessness is an absolute tragedy is because ultimately fatherlessness turns reality into unreality? Now, what do do I, I mean by that? In John 17, Jesus tells us that the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. And then just two verses later, Jesus says that the Father sent him into the world so that the love with which his Father loved him may be in us. So for all of eternity past, the Father loved the Son, then the Father, the Son came so that the love with which his Father loved him may be in us. Not a miniature version or a part or a fraction of that love, but so that the, fa- the love that has been in him may be in us. So what do these two verses in John 17 tell us? They, they, they t- at least tell us that before anything other than God existed, there was a father who loved his son. 
and a son who loved his father. That is the very fabric foundation of ultimate reality. Nothing else but that. uh, Mike Reeves, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, he writes this, Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the logic, the blueprint of creation. He is the one eternally loved by the Father. Creation is about the extension of that love outward so that it may be enjoyed by others. The fountain of love brimmed over. The Father so delighted in the Son that His love for Him overflowed so that the Son might be the firstborn among many brothers. The the love of the Father and the Son has everything to do with both creation and redemption. It's It's the cause of it all. It's the meaning of it all. Listen to what Garrett Dawson, Presbyterian pastor in Louisiana, writes. The universe came to be as part of the eternal love story of the Father and the Son before the worlds began. The Father loved His Son and the Son loved the Father in a mystery beyond description. This love occurred in the bonds of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity was the personal glue, the love, as Augustine said, that ever flowed within the triune being. Indeed, all things were made out of the overflow of this love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. More simply put, the universe came into being out of a great love story. In the virgin's womb, this love touched down in the midst of a broken, of a darkened, broken world. The incarnate God showed his sacred face in the infant Jesus so that we could now enter into his love. He tasted the sorrow of this world so that we might be taken into the joy of the eternal love of the Father and the Son. So why all this talk about the love between the Father and the Son? Because of its importance. Without the Father's love for His Son and the Son's love for His Father, God is not God and there is no such thing as creation. Created reality absolutely depends upon the love of the Father for the Son. Uh, Another letter by J.R.R. Tolkien, writing to his son, I love this, it's profound. Tolkien writes, the the link between father and son is not only of the perishable flesh, the ones that we enjoy. It must have something of eternality about it. So, So when the link between a father and a child is broken, for whatever reason, death, poverty, war, disease. It reveals the utter brokenness of our world and the only thing that can heal it. It's, it's a turning 
reality into unreality. When all the plagues were happening in Egypt, what God was demonstrating is this is what happens when reality is turned into unreality. It reveals that man's sin is actually an affront to the very foundation of reality, which is the eternal love of the Father and the Son. Adoption, then, is the restoration of the eternal love of the Trinity within the created order. You catch that? Adoption is the restoration of the eternal love of the Trinity within the created order. And so David in Psalm 36, 8 is tapping into that with the river of delights or the river of Edens. So how did this happen? Remember, uh, David also refers to feasts in the abundance of his house, his tabernacle, his temple. And then we're given the drink from the river of his delights. Remember when Jesus in John 2 is, is talking to the Jews and they say, you know, what sign do you give us for these things? And Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up. Raise it up, and, and the Jews say to him, you know, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. You know, what are you, how are you going to build it up in three days? But, and then John inserts this editorially, but he was speaking about the temple of his body, the house. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had spoken this, and they believed the scripture and, and that Jesus had spoken Suddenly things began to make sense. And you jump ahead to John 6, and you have Jesus saying to them, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And there is a correlation between what he says there and what we find in Psalm 36, 8, where he says, those who come to me shall feast on the abundance of my house, and I will give them to drink of the river of my pleasures. And then Jesus is saying the same thing about himself, that whoever comes to me shall not hunger. In other words, they shall feast on the abundance of my house. I'm the house. My body is food. And you shall never thirst. You will enjoy the love of that I enjoy of the Father. You will participate in it. The the Father will sing over you even as he sings over me. That's what adoption is. So when we think about what should motivate us, what should motivate us as we look at caring for orphans, what should motivate us as we consider giving donations or uh, uh, giving money towards uh, funds or organizations that that are actively engaged in caring for orphans, what should motivate us is that we love because he first loved what? Us. When The more we come to grips with the love that has been showered and is being showered upon us, the more we come to grips with it, the more we rejoice in it, the more we encourage each other with it, the, mother, the more we one another, each other with it, the more we are encouraged to give. Not because we've been guilted into doing so, but because of the great privilege it is to be loved by the Father and to share in the Father's Son and their love 
and seeing that extended out because God's work of adoption is ultimately the way he makes all things right and that day is coming in the new heavens and the new earth where no longer will there be an orphan in existence and the word itself will no longer be a part of our vocabulary. This is the story of adoption that makes sense out of the anarchy that we see. And it is the story that should shape the way we think and shape the way we live. Let's pray. Father, you are a great God. You are our Father. You have given us our elder brother. He is uh, faithful to the end. He was faithful as he rose from the dead and ascended to the Father, and he is preparing a place for us in the very place of his enjoyment of his, your love. And so we ask that we would know more of the Father's love, that we would know what it is to participate more fully, more deeply in the love of the Son for the Father, and that that love may work itself outward in us, and particularly as it relates to caring for orphans and vulnerable children. I pray that you would uh, work within this church and the work that you have already done and the fruit that is already evident. I pray that it would continue to grow and and that um, it would be motivated by the rich gift of grace that you have given us in the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray this in the name of Christ, our elder brother. Amen.